You can open again to uh, Matthew 11, the scripture that Jillian read for us earlier. If you don't have a Bible, you can pull out the uh, Bible in the seat back in front of you and um, open up to page, I think it's 689, Matthew 11. 689. Say what? 966. There's a few... um, there's a few Bibles that got slipped in with the others, which have a different page numbering there. Uh, so anyway, that just, just to keep us on our toes and confuse us further, unfortunately. In fact, if you have one of those Bibles, hold on to it at, at the end and um, give it to me so we can get it out of this room <laughs> and replace it with one that has the right numbering. <laughs> All right, well, uh, we live in a stressed out world, don't we? We can have our first slide here. There are countless jokes and articles um, about our stress. Do we have the slides? There's an example for you. It says, uh, place kit on a firm surface, follow directions in circle of kit, repeat step two as necessary or until unconscious. If unconscious, cease stress reduction activity. So it's almost, we, we like to joke about stress. It's almost a badge of pride to be stressed out. Just like when we say, how are you, to someone, we don't really expect an answer. So when, when someone says that they're stressed or they're busy, we know that everything's normal, right? In fact, if, if they said that things were peaceful and, and restful, we might be shocked. We might wonder if they were okay. But we long for rest and for peace. The marketers have picked up on this, and so there are mattress ads promising us rest, and vitamin supplement ads, and vacation ads, and on and on it goes. So how was your past week? Could you use some rest and some refreshment after this past week? Does that look good? (laughs) Well, today we're looking at a story for people who are stressed and burdened and weighed down with life's cares. We pick up Matthew's telling of the story of Jesus in Matthew 11, starting in verse 25. Jesus has been proclaiming the coming of God's kingdom, if you're reading through the book of Matthew. He has been teaching people the way of this kingdom. Jesus has been healing, as you looked at last week, and casting out demons as evidence that this kingdom is arriving. God is at work in Jesus, extending his arms of mercy and compassion, healing his damaged creation, setting the captives free, restoring what was broken, healing what was diseased, replacing brokenness and fragmentation with wholeness and with goodness. And Jesus has been at this work long enough that by this point in the story, he has started to experience opposition and rejection. Not everyone is happy when God shows up. There are people who have found ways to make a good living off the backs and misfortunes of others. And so not everyone welcomes it when people are set free and made whole. There are other people who aren't against God and they aren't against restoration or salvation, but they're just too preoccupied to pay much notice. They're busy making life work for themselves, or or maybe they're succeeding, or, or maybe they're trying hard to succeed. But either way, they can't be bothered with any outside interruption, even if that that interruption does come from God. 
In the passage we're going to look at next week, which is the story in Matthew's gospel just before today's story. Don't ask me why the scripture plan that we follow has these two stories reversed. But in the story just before today's story, Jesus began to announce or to denounce several cities where he had done the bulk of his miracles, but they had by and large ignored him. Jesus had evidently poured his heart out in these cities. Capernaum is one of them. Chorazin. Bethsaida. He had loved these cities. He had no doubt talked to them about God's kingdom. He'd taken time to care for them and to heal them. And they just disregarded all this. They'd shrugged their shoulders and they'd gone on with their lives. Minimal impact, few changed lives, little transformation, mostly just apathy and distraction. Well, how do you think this made Jesus feel? How do you feel when you experience failure? When you're rejected? When you really believe in something and you try your hardest and you give it your best and it comes to nothing? Well, in our story this morning, starting in verse 25, we see how Jesus responds. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, Jesus exclaims, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Jesus praises God. Jesus rejoices in God. Jesus gets excited about what God is doing and what God is not doing. Jesus celebrates that God's good pleasure is being worked out, even though that means that he's failing in his mission. Boy, what does Jesus know that I don't know? Jesus must be tuned into a different perspective on life. He must see a different reality than the reality that I see. Not only is Jesus experiencing personal rejection and failure at this point in the various places that he, he worked so hard and he expended so much effort, but as we'll see next week, Jesus' heart breaks for these cities which have rejected him. Jesus knows that their rejection is going to have disastrous consequences for these people on the day of judgment. And so Jesus is grieved for these cities, for the people who live in them. And yet, though sorrowing and heartbroken, though facing failure, Jesus is rejoicing in God and praising God. I'll say it again. What does Jesus know that I don't know? Answer, Jesus knows his Father. And his Father means more to him than anything else. Commentator Dale Bruner remarks, Somehow and somewhere, behind and above a discouraging world, stands a poised father, completely in control and utterly unfrustrated. To believe that human beings are the final arbiters of history is inevitably to become a whiner rather than a thanker. But somehow in Jesus' hour of failure and sorrow, as Jesus looks at the lost cities who won't get found, he turns his eyes to his Father. And he remembers and rejoices in what pleases his Father after he has been grieved in what grieves his Father. 
Jesus knows that while on the other hand, or while on the one hand, people are, are definitely responsible for the choices that they make, yet on the other hand, in some mysterious way, God is still at work in and through and above the choices that people make. So that everything is ultimately working out in line with God's pleasures. That God may grieve that people reject him, but that rejection will not ultimately thwart or undo God's final purposes. Jesus remembers specifically that his father delights to reveal himself to those who are like little children and to hide himself from those who are wise and learned. God delights to show up and to save and to befriend the little people, the downtrodden, the needy, the simple, the helpless. And God delights to remain unknown to those who are all enamored with their own smarts and their own wisdom and and their own learning and intellect. Have you ever met someone who's a real know-it-all? Who's so wise and so knowledgeable that they can't hear anything that you have to say? Maybe you've read the news commentaries or blogs of people like this. Well, I've met people like this, and occasionally they'll be spouting off about a subject that I happen to know a lot more about than they do. But they're full of opinions, and they've got it all figured out, and they can't hear anything. All they want to do is educate me. It's maddening, isn't it? You've had those conversations, right? Well, think how God feels. God knows infinitely more about everything than we humans And yet smart people, educated people are constantly spouting off about what's true and what's fair and what's right and wrong and about the nature of reality and the meaning of life. God delights to hide himself from these kind of people and to reveal himself to simple people, to open people, to people willing to admit that there's some things they just don't know to people willing to learn and and to be surprised and uh, to be enlightened by, by something that they didn't know. God has always loved the meek and the lowly, the underdogs who have little going for them. God welcomes them to himself. And so as Jesus sees this being worked out around him, he can rejoice because it's in keeping with God's character and with God's heart. Jesus loves his father above all. And he's come only to do the will of his father. Do you know that worship song, above all? Above all powers, above all kings, above all nature and all created things. And the chorus goes, crucified, laid behind a stone. You live to die, rejected and alone. Like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall And thought of me above all. And thought of me above all? That's not right. Granted, Jesus loves me and you a great deal. Yes, Jesus came to this earth to die on a cross to take away the sins of the whole world and even yours and mine. On that cross, Jesus thought of us. But he didn't think of you or me above all. He thought of his father above all. 
He was on that cross above all for his father, expressing his father's love for the whole world and even for you and me. Jesus came above all to do the will of his father. Jesus delights above all to please his father. Jesus did what he did and said what, said what he said above all because of his father. All things have been committed to me by my father, Jesus says in verse 27. The father has placed everything in Jesus' hands. The father has charged Jesus with the mission of extending God's love to the world. Jesus goes on, no one knows the son except the father. This Greek word translated know is an intense word. The father really knows the son. Nobody else really knows who Jesus really is. The towns who have ignored his miracles sure don't. The wise and learned sure don't. And if the little children, the simple people, come to know Jesus, it's only because the Father who really knows him makes him known. Jesus continues, And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. No one knows the Father, but Jesus, the Son, knows him. And the Father has charged Jesus with the task of making God known to those who will become like little children. And so when we see Jesus, we see God. Stop speculating about the Godhead, Martin Luther, the, the great reformer, once told his theology students. Stop climbing, as it were, into heaven to see who or what or how God is. Rather, hold on to this man, Jesus, Luther urged. He is the only God we've got. Dale Bruner adds, The Son became the man, Jesus, and ever since, history has been flooded with the knowledge of God. And yet the wise and learned overlook it. But to all who will humble themselves like little children and open their eyes and ears, Jesus, the one who knows God and who knows what pleases God and who has come from God to, for the express purpose of working out God's pleasures, Jesus communicates a wonderful invitation from God. Here it is. Come to me. All who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Are these wonderful words or what? Are you stressed? Are you burdened? Then this invitation is for you. Let me quote the preacher Daryl Johnson at length because he wonderfully expresses this invitation. Come. I once saw a poster, he said, that said, God's favorite word is come. Yes, Jesus says, go, go and make disciples of all nations. And yes, Jesus says, give, give yourself away for the sake of the city. And yes, Jesus says, sing and serve and heal and preach. But Jesus' favorite word is come. Me, come to me. Jesus does not say come to religion. 
He does not say come to spirituality. He does not say come to church. He does not even say come to the divine one. Jesus says, come to me. He calls us to himself. Christianity is essentially a person. Come to me, all who are weary. All who are weary from the brokenness of life. All who are weary from the suffering of the world. All who are weary from injustice and pain and sorrow and talk of terrorism and war. Do you know anyone like that? Well, I'll stop quoting Johnson now and continue on my own. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Burdened by stress, by busyness, by the endless treadmill of life, by the impossible expectations we put on ourselves or others put on us, burdened by regrets, by guilt, by shame, burdened by religion burdened. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. What a wonderful invitation. Jesus knows the Father like no one else. All things have been committed to Jesus by the Father. Jesus comes as the Father's personal representative, delighting to do the pleasure of the Father. And what does Jesus do? He invites everyone who is weary and burdened to come to himself so that we can experience rest. Rest. Rest is wonderful, isn't it? Could you go for a couple of worry-free weeks, maybe at a seaside resort right now? Yeah. Rest is wonderful, and it's all the more wonderful when we realize what Jesus means by rest. A little history. When God's people were slaves in Egypt back in the time of Moses, the Egyptians worked them mercilessly. The, the Israelites worked seven days a week, slaving away for their captors, the Egyptians' benefits. God's people had no freedom, no dignity, no humanity, no hope, no future. But then God redeemed them. God set them free from Egypt, and one of the first things God did was to give them a gift. The gift of a day off, a Sabbath, a weekend. This gift was a down payment and a symbol of what God had in store for them when he brought them through the wilderness and into the promised land where they would be free to prosper and to flourish. God called this life in the promised land that they were looking forward to their rest. When they entered into the land, he told them, they would be entering into God's rest. They would be entering into peace and shalom. They would be entering into health and wholeness. They'd be entering into freedom. They'd be entering into blessing, a life where things were right, right with their own souls, right with God, right with one another, right with the land itself. It would be that well-being that we all long for. It would be rest. And now Jesus offers, Come to me, everyone who is weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Wow. How, Jesus? How will you do it? Verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For my yoke is easy 
and my burden is light. What? Put on a yoke? A yoke is used for manual labor to carry and to pull heavy loads. What gives, Jesus? Dale Bruner, I think, expresses our surprise very well. A yoke is a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need least. Maybe a mattress or a vacation, but not a yoke. But Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life. A fresh way to bear responsibilities. For in the final analysis, realism sees that life is a succession of burdens. We cannot get away from them. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment. Daryl Johnson puts it this way. Jesus is telling us that we are weary because we are wearing the wrong yokes. Refreshment for the soul comes from a transfer of yokes. Johnson continues, you see, the question is never, will I wear a yoke? The question is always, whose yoke will I wear? Every person wears a yoke. There are no yokeless human beings. <laughs> the question is never, will I be a disciple? The question is always, whose disciple will I be? The question is never, will I be pressured by a spirit? The question is always, of all the spirits of the age that pressure me, to which will I yield? The question is never, will I wear a yoke? The question is always, which yoke will I wear? Jesus is telling us that we're weary and overburdened because we're wearing the wrong yokes. Switch yokes. Take up mine. My yoke is easy and my burden is light, Jesus says. Jesus' yoke is easy. His burden is light. That's why Jesus can face failure and, and can feel the weight of the lost world and yet can joyfully praise God in the midst of it all. Wouldn't you like to be able to do that? So here's the big question. What is Jesus' yoke that he's inviting us to wear? Well, to wear a yoke was a familiar image to farm people in Jesus' day. They spoke of the yoke of slavery the yoke of Roman oppression. They also spoke of the yoke of God's kingdom and, and the yoke of, of wisdom. To wear a yoke was to submit oneself to something. To submit oneself to something. Jewish rabbis regularly urged their followers to take up the yoke of Torah, God's law. But no religious teacher ever said what Jesus says. Not take up the yoke of Torah. Not take up the yoke of God's kingdom. Not take up the yoke of wisdom. But take up my yoke. Come to me. Submit yourself to me. Follow me. Obey me. A person. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. So why is Jesus' yoke easy? Why is this burden light? I mean, like, have you read the Sermon on the Mount? <laughs> Jesus' teaching is more demanding. His standards are higher. I mean, Jesus winds up on a cross for crying out loud. And he tells those who want to follow him to take up their crosses and follow him too. 
How can Jesus say that his yoke is easy and his burden is light? Well, four reasons, briefly. First, because Jesus is meek and humble in heart. Verse 29. He's not like the other religious leaders who weighed people down with rules and guilt. Jesus isn't trying to prove anything to anybody. Jesus isn't driven by perfectionism from, from his past and his upbringing so that he, he's pushing that perfectionism on others. Jesus isn't on a power trip. He doesn't enjoy seeing his followers trip up. No, Jesus is gentle and humble. He wants us to experience rest. He wants us to live in such a way that we'll be refreshed in soul. Jesus is for us, gently, lovingly, compassionately. Second, Jesus' yoke is easy because he helps us to carry it. By his spirit, Jesus comes alongside us to lend a strong shoulder. He gives us the strength. He gives us the empowerment. He even gives us the will. Jesus wants to see us succeed, and so he helps us to succeed. Third, Jesus' yoke is easy because he doesn't saddle us with pointless rules just to spoil our party and take our fun away. No, just the opposite. Jesus teaches us how to really live. When we walk in Jesus' commands, we find healing. We experience restoration. We are set free. Life starts to work. It begins to make sense. Jesus' teaching makes us whole. When we follow his commands, we begin finally to become truly human. When Jesus says, come to me, take my yoke, he's putting himself in direct competition with every form of religion. Jesus is putting himself in his own day in competition particularly with the version of Jewish religion that was presided over by the teachers of the law, the religious experts, the wise and the learned of his day. They were always exhorting their followers to take up the yoke of Torah. And these leaders had a way of adding command to command. They sought to put a fence around God's law by giving extra rules so that if you kept their rules, you wouldn't even uh, come close or get close to God's rules to break them. But if you keep reading in Matthew's gospel, Jesus condemns these religious teachers. He says that they're tying up heavy burdens for the little people to carry. And, and these religious leaders are so pleased with themselves and they're in such awe of their own learning and their own righteousness that they can't even bother to lift a finger to help the little people carry the loads they put on them. But Jesus takes a different approach to God's law. He cuts right to the heart of it. He discovers its true intention. He points us to it. He wants us to discover God's heart, God's mind, God's true good intention for us. And so we keep the Old Testament best when we follow the teaching of Jesus. And we find the burden is light. Fourth, finally, 
Jesus' yoke is light because it's first and foremost a relationship with his Father. Notice again the context into which Jesus offers us his yoke. He's praising his Father. He's rejoicing in his Father's will. He's exalting that he knows the Father like nobody else. And the Father knows him too. That's Jesus' easy yoke, to know the Father and to do the will of the Father whom he loves so much. And that's the yoke that Jesus longs to, to give to each of us as well. He wants us to know the Father like he knows the Father. Who remembers our new short version of our mission statement? Grace read it for us earlier. Let's all practice it. Knowing God, growing together, showing Christ. This is the knowing God part. Our purpose at CBC is to know Jesus' Father like Jesus knows Him. That's what Jesus wants for us. If you have been reading through Matthew's Gospel, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where He first lays out His teaching, it's just permeated with this Father focus. 17 references to be exact. I'm not going to read them all for you. But Jesus says, let your light shine before men that they may praise your Father in heaven. Love your enemies that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. When you pray, when you give, when you fast, do it in secret. Then your Father who sees what you do in secret will reward you. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. Look at the birds of the air. Your heavenly Father feeds them. How much more will He feed you? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? The Father. It's about the Father. Jesus' yoke is easy. Jesus' burden is light because he loves and trusts in the care of the Father. And so he delights to do the will of the Father. And he offers us the same yoke. So how does your life feel? How does your Christianity feel? Is it easy? Is it light? Or is it stressful and weary and burdened? Could it be that we're wearing the wrong yokes? Let's pray. Jesus, in you we encounter something, someone completely different than anything we've known before. And our hearts are at various places. We're afraid of different things. We're insecure about different things. We're burdened by different things. And as we hear your invitation, um, we have certain fears and hesitancies and doubts. You 
like your father, are overjoyed to reveal who you really are to those who are like little children. I pray that you'd open our eyes to see how trustworthy you are for us to take your yoke to follow you. Amen. Well, as Rachel comes and we sing the closing song, we want to invite you to take off the yoke that you're wearing. If there's a yoke, you need to take off and to take up the yoke that Jesus is offering. And there's a sheet of paper in your bulletin yoke on it. And during this song, we invite you, if you want to, um, to write down what that yoke is that you may need to take off. And if you don't have one in your bulletin, you can come up and get one here. There are usually pencils and pens in the seat back in front of you. And we invite you to just come up during the song and to take your yoke and to add it to this heavy burdened pile here, to slip it in between the rocks And then to take Jesus' yoke instead as represented by this small light piece with the sign of the cross on it as a reminder of taking up Jesus' yoke. So worship as you want as we sing this closing song.